and welcome to the Bizarre and Fascinating Details Podcast. I'm your host, Sarah, and I've got my co-host, Darcy, over there. How you doing, Darcy? Hello. I'm doing all right. How are you? I'm doing well. We had a little snafu last week with our episode, didn't we? <laughs> yeah, we did. <laughs> Darcy scares the crap out of me. She's like, holy moly, the whole thing is, this is off. The track is off. The track is off. <laughs> and of course, I do all the editing myself, so if you have any complaints about the editing, come to me. But it wasn't the whole thing. It was like it was two minutes in the beginning. Yeah. Um, and the yeah. thing is, we kind of talk over each other sometimes. So the track was lined up, but we had just kind of talked over each other a little. But we yeah, fixed it. Yeah. So pardon our snafu. <laughs> Everything we say is so important. Is. So we have to just make sure it's all heard. Well, not only that, but I don't want to forget what the thought was in my head. Oh, that's the Gotta worst. Got to get it out first. Right? We've got a lot of crazy stuff going on lately um, yeah. in the news and whatnot. But um, speaking of crazy things, let's talk about our case that we're going to cover today. Yeah, so I actually got my act together and um, wrote a case this week. What? Stop it. I know, isn't that crazy? So we're going to talk about John Benet Ramsey, and we're going to approach it kind of in a different way because this case has been discussed by everyone. Yeah. So I want to kind of talk about it more from like a scientific perspective and like and, and how it kind of relates to like my job, similar to like the Bob Saget okay. little mini episode we kind of I'm did. ready. Um, so we all know that six-year-old John Benet Ramsey was killed on or around December 26, 1996 in Boulder, Colorado. And so like just kind of a very brief background of the case around 5.30 a.m. the morning of the 26th. John Bonet's mother, Patsy, first realized her daughter was missing when she came downstairs to make some coffee and she found a two and a half page handwritten ransom note on this kitchen staircase. Oh my gosh, can you imagine? No. So, like, the note says John Bonet has been kidnapped and it demands a ransom of $118,000 in cash. Which seems like a random amount. Yeah, we're going to talk about we're gonna We're going to get into this note. But, so... The Ramseys call 911 at 5.52 a.m. Wow, she's an early riser. Yes. Well, she got up around 5.30. So, like, you presumably, she gets up, she sees the note, they look around the house. I mean, I, I don't know this to be sure, but you would assume, assume they look around the house. And then they call 911. Okay. And two officers arrive on the scene three minutes later. Three okay. minutes? Yes. It's very fast response. I mean, like, wow. when you call about, like, a child kidnapping, like, they are on the scene. Um, Patsy also called a few family and friends after she called police. Okay. Like, hey, this is what's going Which, on. Which, that sounds normal. I yeah. would probably do that, too. So, exactly. And so, the, the two police officers that arrive first kind of conduct a preliminary search of the house looking for any signs of forced entry, anything like that. They don't find anything. Okay. And one of the officers, Rick French, goes into the basement because he's looking for exit routes. So, like, okay, we can't find how they got in, but maybe we can see how they left. Um, Which sounds legit, and he, right? Yeah. And so he sees a door that is kind of secured by a wooden latch. So he stops. And he's like, well, if this is secured by a wooden latch from the inside, this is not what they used to get out of the house. Because they couldn't latch okay. it again. Right? So he doesn't do it. He just leaves. Okay. So by now, other officers have arrived on the scene. And they start dusting the house for fingerprints. And they start searching for clues. Um. And they also, they also put taps on the phones because it's a ransom situation. Yeah. 
presumably you're going to get a phone call. That's typically how these things go. Police also end up cordoning off John Bonet's room, seeing as this was likely the main crime scene right. of the kidnapping, but they didn't actually do anything else to protect the rest of the house. Okay. So, like, the family is there. So you have John and Patsy Ramsey, John Bonet's parents, and you also have her nine year old brother, Burke. And then, since it's their home, obviously you expect their fingerprints to be in the house. So, like, this doesn't rule them out of, like, being involved in any way. But it's just you would want to look for somebody's fingerprints who isn't a member of the house. So there's somebody else that came in and right. did But that's complicated by the fact that Patsy had called some friends and family. And now there's other people in the house. So first to arrive are Fleet and Priscilla White. Followed by John and Barbara Fernie. So these are friends of the parents. The Ramsey's minister also stops by. Okay, to provide that support. Wow, they've got everybody and their grandpa coming in and out of this house. People are just walking willy-nilly in and out. And that's on top of the police presence. So, like, now there's there's multiple police officers and detectives and things there. So there's a lot of people coming in and going to this house. So Fleet and Priscilla White take Burke to their house because this is a really tense and fluid situation. And, I mean, a nine-year-old is not going to, like, make anything at the scene easier, right? So... The police also called some victims advocates. So these are people that are like specifically trained by the police department to help families deal with traumatic situations. Mm -hmm. Well, these people roll up with coffee and bagels and they set up shop in the kitchen. Wow. It just sounds so random. Yes. After serving breakfast, they start cleaning up the kitchen. And, like, some of the friends and family that are there also help clean up, cleaning up, including, like, spraying down the counters with, like, a disinfectant spray. Ugh. So, like, on the one hand, I get why, like, I get the need to do something because you want to make yourself feel useful. You're in a situation where you can't control anything. There's nothing for you to do. So you just start finding things to do. And for a lot of us, that's like, well, let me help pick up the yeah. house or let me help clean. So, like, I understand the urge to do that. But at what point do the police not say, hey, this is where we found the ransom note. Maybe let's not disinfect it. Maybe let's not wipe it down. Yeah. So that's a, that's, that's a question that we'll never get the answer to. Detective Linda Arndt arrives at the house around 8 a.m. And because she is going to be there to kind of handle the ransom communication when they call. But nobody ever ends up contacting the Ramseys to claim this money. Hmm. And so by this point, hours have gone by. People are coming and going from the house. Police are everywhere. People are just kind of sitting around and waiting for something to happen. Like, the, the Ramseys are kind of, like, pacing. Like, John is pacing. Patsy's kind of comatose, like, just sitting there. No, nobody knows what to do. And there's just a lot of people around. Yeah. So around 1 p.m., Detective Art says that she feels like she needs to give John something to do to kind of keep his mind occupied. Mm -hmm. So what she does is she asks John and Fleet White to conduct a search of the house from top to bottom to see if anything looks amiss. Hey, does it look like anything's been moved? Think so far somebody to get in and out. Is there anything missing? This, that, and the other. So why this hadn't been done earlier by police with, like, with police walking with John Ramsey through the house, like, 
that's never explained. But anyway, this is something that Linda decides needs to be done now with John and Fleet by themselves. Okay. So they start searching not in her bedroom. They start searching. Maybe it's because, you know, maybe they started searching and not in, not in the bedroom because it was, like, taped off. I don't know. But they don't start in the bedroom where the crime presumably happened. They start in the basement. And they come to the latched door that Officer French had not opened before. And they open it, and that is when they find John Benet's body. Wow. So it's it's hours have gone by, and this is something that they could have, you know, I don't know exactly when her time of death was. I, I, I believe she was already, she would have been dead if, if Officer French had opened the door. But the other reason this is important is so when when they found John Bonet, they, her her mouth was duct taped, um, and she had a nylon rope around her neck and wrists, and her torso was covered in a white sheet. So well, she John knew? takes the blank. I don't believe she was. No, she was wearing okay. clothes. Um, so John takes the duct tape off of her mouth, and he picks her up and he carries her upstairs. Now again, oh God, it's really easy to like. Monday morning quarterback this and be like you can't compromise the crime scene and yes that is true but at the same time this is her this is his daughter like you know what I mean he doesn't know exactly what's going on it's a shocking situation he picks her up he's taking he doesn't want her to be hurt he's taking the duct tape off of her mouth you know so I just have to interject for a moment here because yeah the police have been in this house for how long now uh, at least like six hours, and no one thought to give a detailed back to front, bottom to top search of the house. Apparently not. Apparently, the only search that was conducted was when the first two arrived, and like did a preliminary search for forced entry or potential exit routes. It just blows my mind. It's this like that's like the whole like it's one of the many many questions that we will never have answered about this case, and it's one of the reasons this case is unsolved. And I never understood as well like. If they did a search of the house, how she could have remained hidden until they opened that latch door later, until right. I moved right. into the house that we're in right now. <laughs> because oh, honestly, yeah. like the basement is just doors on doors on doors and rooms that go into rooms that go into rooms that go into rooms, and somebody could literally be hidden in the basement for years and we wouldn't know. But like. If somebody, if you were, if you found a note that was like a tragic event has happened in your house, wouldn't you search everywhere regardless? Yeah, but like, if it's saying we have your daughter for ransom, typically people don't kidnap a person and keep them in their own home. They take them somewhere. True. So I wouldn't think, oh, this kid's got to still be in our house. I don't know. Maybe like you're, maybe you're trying to hope that like you can still find them in the house before they get out like I don't know it just doesn't it just seems like again one of those situations where again it's a situation you don't have anything any control over so you try to do something that's within your control do you know what I mean so but either way the police don't search the house it's only until around one o'clock that Fleet and John find John Bonet and again they do not have a police going a police officer going with them so he picks up the body he takes the duct tape off of her mouth and he brings her upstairs and sets her on the okay, floor. Okay, so he's clearly disrupting any kind of crime scene. <laughs> yeah. Yes. But, I mean, the but thing again, is, you can always you can understand. say, 
how we would react in this situation. Yeah. And the simple fact of the matter is you can never predict how you would react in that kind of a situation no. until it happens. I mean, and God, it's your I, six-year-old I hope it doesn't daughter. Like, you, can't, you can't even have yeah. on this. So, like, the thing that happens next, though, is also inexplicable because Detective Arndt then picks John Bonet up from where John White or from John where John Ramsey has laid her down and moves her into the living room uh, and sets her down on the floor by the Christmas why? tree. Why? Why? So now your fingerprints are all over her and your DNA is all over her. Like you're just compromising. It's not like he moved her so into CPR. I mean, why? No. No, and then like yeah, so 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 Detective Art moves her body to the living room floor where John is, like, kneeling over her and just repeatedly saying, like, my little angel over and over and over again because he's devastated. And friends have to basically carry Patsy over to her body, to Domine's body, and then Patsy throws herself onto the body. Again, an understandable reaction, but at this point, there are police all around, and they should have stopped it. Yeah. Like, I'm not saying... Like, I understand the parents having the emotional response that they had. I don't understand the police not securing the scene in any capacity. Okay, so there's this thing that power and money and privilege allow. Yeah. And I think oftentimes authorities will bow to that and let them do what they want. Yes, I like, I get that, but at the same time, like... Have they been there long enough for, like, that power dynamic to have been established? Like, that, you know what I mean? Like, I don't know. Yeah, it's the house. Like, they know. I yeah. mean, it's the yes, neighborhood. It's a very it's, exclusive yeah, neighborhood. I don't yeah. think that there's a question. Not to mention the fact that had somebody come into my house, I would have taken control, too. I'm just like that. I'm a control person. I would have can taken control of that. Forget the crime scene. Yeah. I mean, again, you know, like, I just, I don't know. Like, it just seems like. One of the many, many reasons, like, this this case is unsolved is because of the way it was handled at the end, at the job, right. you know, with by the, by the police. And so, first, let's talk about, like, some common misconceptions that have been out there about this case. So, there are reports, and I remember hearing all of these things when this happened. So, I, you know, there were reports that police found no signs of forced entry, but there was, like, multiple windows as well as a door that were found to just be unlocked. Yeah. So they wouldn't need so like, to force not entry. Assume, they could just yes. walk right in. Walk right in. And there was also, so like a couple windows were slightly cracked because, again, it was Christmas. And they were cracked to let the power cords for the outdoor Christmas lights oh plug Lord. in. So like they just have windows that are like just are just already open. So it's a prime and location again, this is the for thing something of, bad to Yeah, and, and this is the thing of that you, you have that false sense of, of safety, security in your neighborhood. They have this very wealthy, exclusive neighborhood. They probably felt completely safe, you know. So what does it matter if we leave this leave this window cracked or this door un- unlocked? There's also a broken window because a couple weeks prior, John had, like, forgot his keys and had to break into oh, this Lord. house. So, like, there's a lot of ways that, that whoever did this could have gotten in the house. Like, it's not – they want, like – you hear about this case and people talk about it as if like that house was like locked down and there's no way anybody from outside the house could have done that. That's simply not true. So John and Patsy both provided handwriting, blood and hair samples to the police. And they were also interviewed for more than two hours. 
And this is like shortly after they find JonBenet, right? Yeah. Um, and their son Burke is also interviewed within a few weeks of this happening. Because remember, he was not a at few the house weeks. At the time. Why was he? Why did they wait a few weeks? I don't know why they waited a few weeks. There's not. That's not clear. And he also had been taken away from the house at the time that they found her. So I'm not clear on that. It could just be because he's nine years old and it was traumatic and they had to set things up with lawyers. I wouldn't let somebody talk to my kid without an attorney present or me present. Like, I get that. But I also don't know if Burke provided handwriting, blood, or hair samples. Like, that's just not made clear. He may have. It's just not made clear in the articles I read. So by all accounts, you know, they're cooperating. And then the media gets involved, and you hear all these stories. And over the last 25-plus years since this happened, each of the Ramseys individually has been accused of either being involved or murdering John Bonet themselves. So this case is still unsolved, and that's kind of all we're going to get into as far as speculation on the case. Because what I want to talk about is the evidence of this case. Okay. So let's talk about the ransom note. First of all, it's very long. Ransom notes typically are not long, usually, and it's also handwritten. So, like, presumably it's it was written at the scene because otherwise, like, if you could create the ransom note prior to, why wouldn't you, like, type it and try and disguise your handwriting? Yeah. Right? So it's written at the scene. So, like, whoever did this felt like they had enough time to write a two and a half page note in the kitchen on top of taking John Bonet out of her bedroom with all without waking anybody that else. That just seems very unlikely. People don't take the time like to do something like that when they're in a situation no. like that. Like two and a half pages. With the family like in the house. Lot. Yeah, that takes like that's a long time. That's like at least fifteen minutes of writing. So <clears throat> second, let's talk about the number of the amount of the ransom. So that's a very specific number, like he pointed out. It's $118,000. We also know by this point that that is the exact amount of John Ramsey's Christmas bonus the previous year. Interesting. So, so somebody had to have known the family well. Yes, and John is upfront about that. He's like, hey, this is the exact amount I got in my bonus last year. He doesn't hide that. Like, it's not like he's trying to hide anything, but the the implication is this is somebody that knows John from business because they would know what his bonus is in some capacity. So John, by the way, is the president of like a computer software company, which in 96 was like on the verge of being like the biggest of deals, Mm -hmm. you know? And it's this company that's called um, Access Graphics and they were eventually bought and became a subsidiary of Lockheed Martin. So it's like a real big deal. So I don't know how well-known, like, Access Graphics was at the time, but it was based in the Boulder area, so, like, you could assume it's a pretty well-known company, at least locally. And then, you know, Lockheed Martin is a very big war profiteering company, so, like, we all know them. So, anyway, so they they test the notes for fingerprints, and they find Patsy's fingerprints because she picked up the note when she first saw it around 5.30 a.m., and they also found the officers who arrived on the scene. So they... They, they have those fingerprints. So let's get to what the note says. Mr. Ramsey, listen carefully. We are a group of individuals that represent a small foreign faction. We respect your business, but not the country that it serves. 
At this time, we have your daughter in our possession. She is safe and unharmed, and if you want her to see 1997, you must follow our instructions to the letter. You will withdraw $118,000 from your account. $100,000 will be in $100 bills, and the remaining $18,000 in $20 bills. Make sure that you bring an adequate size attache to the bank. Attache is not a word that you hear used very often either. Well, also, why do they need to, like, yeah, bring a bag big enough? Like, why does that need to be an instruction? When you get home, you will put the money in a brown paper bag. I will call you between 8 and 10 a.m. tomorrow to instruct you on delivery. The delivery will be exhausting, so I advise you to be rested. If we monitor you getting the money early, we might call you early to arrange an earlier delivery of the money and hence an earlier pickup of your daughter. This sounds incredibly, like, well-spoken and affluent for a freaking ransom note. Well, there's also, I'm not including the typos. There are misspelled words. Like, they when it says, like, we respect your business, um, but not the country that it serves. Like, there's, it's business, B-U-S-S-I. Yeah, but that could be on purpose to try to throw people off. Yes. Exactly. So, okay, back to the note, because it's still going. Any deviation of my instructions will result in the immediate execution of your daughter. You will also be denied her remains for proper burial. The two gentlemen watching over your daughter do not particularly like you, so I advise you not to provoke them. Speaking to anyone about your situation, such as the police, FBI, etc., will result in your daughter being beheaded. If we catch you talking to a stray dog, she dies. If you alert bank authorities, she dies. If the money in any way is marked or tampered with, she dies. You will be scanned for electronic devices, and if they are found, she dies. Okay. You can try... Go ahead. Go ahead. Sorry, I didn't mean to finish the letter. Okay. <laughs> you can try to deceive us, but be warned that we are familiar with law enforcement countermeasures and tactics. You stand a 99% chance of killing your daughter if you try to outsmart us. Follow our instructions, and you stand a 100% chance of getting her back. You and your family are under constant scrutiny, as well as the authorities. Don't try to grow a brain, John. You are not the only fat cat around, so don't think that killing will be difficult. Don't underestimate us, John. Use that good common southern sense of yours. It is use that good southern common sense of yours. It is up to you now, John. And then it's signed Victory and with the initials S B T C. Ridiculous. This is the most ridiculous ransom note I've ever heard. And I this is the first yes. time I've ever heard the ransom note for this. <laughs> yeah. Oh, it's it ridiculous. Really? Yeah. First of all, yeah. no way did somebody else write this. I think Patsy wrote it. Yeah. Number two, even if it was, let's just say some remote crazy theory that somebody actually really did do this. So why did they find the daughter in the house then? They gave up? They decided they didn't want to do yeah. it? Like, come on. Stupid. Yeah. So let's get into it. The police think the note's staged for reasons, obviously, that I've stated because it's really long. And because there's a lot of, like, superfluous language and exclamation points and initials. So it sounds also, like somebody educated some, and affluent, which typically kidnappers are not. It sounds like somebody's covering something up because it starts with, quote, we are a group of individuals, which like, why say that at right. all? And then in the third paragraph, it says any deviation of my instructions. Yeah. So there's conflicting 
subject verb agreement there. And then things like saying withdraw the money from your account yeah. and, and like the your account thing is just unnecessary. Well, the like the person keeps saying, don't grow a brain, John. Do this, John. Yeah, it just like sounds like Patsy yelling at her husband. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, the delivery will be exhausting, so I advise you to be rested. Stupid. Why? Like, like, that's why? why I put, well, that sentence doesn't need to be there. Like, I'm not like critically the attache case. Letter, like, but, come like, on. Bring an attache size, like a, bring a large enough Kidnappers size. Kidnappers don't attache. even know what an attache is, for like crying out loud. But also, like, do you need to be told to like bring a bag big enough if you're withdrawing $118,000 cash? Like, that's gonna take up considerable space. Like, that's something that you shouldn't just have to ridiculous. say. And so, like, what's the point of like taking the time to put that in there? Like, I advise you to be rested. Um, the part about getting the money early and therefore getting John Bonet back is also unnecessary. Like, I guess maybe they want to show that they're watching the Ramses, but then they also explicitly state that later. So when they say you and your family are under cons constant scrutiny, and then like there's the usual threats that you get with like a ransom note about like talking to the police, FBI, etc. But like if if we catch you talking to a stray dog, what? Just like, so what? random. Why put that in there? That's stupid. Like. Yeah, you're kidnapping somebody. You don't have time to be, like, adding bits of flair. <laughs> like, this is just, you know what I mean? And then, like, they let him know that they know about his background because they say use that good southern common sense of yours because John was from Atlanta. And so, like, okay, so it's not a stranger. All right. But then finally the note signs off with, like, victory and SBTC. But as far as I know, in the 25-plus years, we've never found out what either of those things means. Yeah, it just sounds so. Random, it's like some cover of some quote unquote foreign faction. It's like the note is just pure nonsense, and the police think it's staged, like from the jump. So, an autopsy was conducted, and the autopsy revealed that John Bonet's cause of death was asphyxia by strangulation associated with craniocerebral trauma. So we're gonna get into that. We're gonna unpack all of this. Um, so trigger warning because this might be upsetting. Mm -hmm. um, there was a there was a circumferential ligature with associated ligature furrow of the neck. So what that means is there was a there was a that nylon rope was around her neck and it had created a groove in her skin. Yeah. So when that happens, the groove it's you know started off like it's pale and then it kind of turns yellow. Then it, it follows the pattern of bruising. So like it'll be it's by the time that that they received John Bonet's body, this groove was purple. Okay? And it becomes hard to the touch because that that tissue has been has died. So if the ligature is removed shortly after death, there may not be like a groove at all. So like you can actually tell a lot by this ligature mark. So you could like another thing you can tell from it is if it's being if it's used to hang somebody or if the force is being applied by something other than the person's hanging body right so that doesn't really apply in this situation we know John Bonet was murdered but that's just kind of FFR for future reference um, the positioning of the groove can also tell you a lot too because in, in John Bonet's situation it was completely horizontal from front to back with very little upward deviation whereas if this were a hanging situation the rope would come up kind of around the top of your mm -hmm. neck by the back of your neck. Yeah. So we know that the force was applied directly behind her by somebody pulling back. Okay. So um, there were also,
also abrasions and petechial hemorrhaging on the neck as well as, as well as petechial hemorrhaging on her face and on the conjunctival surfaces of her eyes. So like you hear that word a lot. It's, it's a buzzword that you hear in true crime, petechial hemorrhaging. So these are reddish spots. It's caused by broken blood vessels, typically capillaries. Um, but it's actually really common and it's not only associated with death. So like it can be caused by medicine. It can be caused by like excessive coughing any kind of thing where your body's straining for a considerable amount of time, you could actually get petechial hemorrhaging. Um, and this situation, we actually we know that it was because like the strain was because of the pressure around her neck, cutting off the blood flow to her head and neck. Um, and so let's see, there was also an extensive scalp hemorrhage on the right temp temporoparietal area extending from the orbital ridge all the way to the occipital area. So again, this is kind of similar to the Bob Saget case. So this is a large bruise basically on the upper right side of her head from about her right eyebrow all the way to the back of her head. So just above that hemorrhage is like, like above, like top to bottom above. There is, an, there is a linear to comminuted skull fracture, which again is a fracture that is broken into more than two pieces. Um, that extends from the right occipital to posterior parietal area. So the back of your head to the side of your head, forward to the right frontal area across the parietal skull. So the parietal is like the top side of your skull. Okay. And then the occipital is the back of your skull. So under the skull fracture, when they actually like conduct the autopsy and remove the skull, there is an extensive linear purple contusion extending from the right frontal area posteriorly along the lateral aspect of the parietal region into the occipital area. Again, this is basically a bruise on her brain directly under that fracture in the same area from, from right side front to back. And this is kind of confusing because what I know about skull fractures is they start linear at the point of impact and then they kind of radiate outward from there. So the way that, and this is taken from the autopsy report. So the way that this is written, this fracture component makes it sound like she was hit in the back of the head, but the way that the contusion part is written kind of makes it sound like the, the impact was at the front of the head and went to the back. So I don't, I don't really know. Like I know more about skull fractures than I know about brain contusions. So if somebody knows, more about that please let write in and let me know because i'm just not sure okay um and so there were also subarachnoid and subdural hemorrhaging which remember is just bleeding in the areas between the skull and the brain and then she had contusions and abrasions on her right cheek and right shoulder so there was also liver mortis on her right side so she was laying on her right side liver mortis is where your bot where the blood pools in your body if you are laying or it's wherever gravity takes the blood in your body after you die when it's no longer circulating in your body so it's going to pool at the lowest point so she was laying on her right side there was liver mortis on, on the right side of her body okay. um and there was a ligature mark on her right wrist so another buzzword we hear a lot in true crime is the hyoid bone right we hear about talked a lot about in strangulation yes in this case, her hyoid bone was not fractured. Okay. okay. And if you recall from when we discussed the death of Jeffrey Epstein, when people were saying he was killed because his hyoid bone was fractured, we know John Bonet was murdered. And 
her hyoid bone was not fractured. So this is just more evidence to say like, you can't rely on the presence of a hyoid fracture to determine if it, somebody was killed versus died by suicide, yeah. right? And it's actually like super unreliable to look at the hyoid bone but to determine manner of death because the research, the literature says it happens between 17 and 76% of strangulation cases. That's a cases. really big so like, variance. Huge. So there's basically, you can't look at this and tell if, if it was intentional or, you know, homicidal or died by suicide. So unfortunately, while I can add some context, some context to the nature of her injuries, like I don't know anything about who actually killed her and I'm not going to speculate. Like we can, we can talk about, obviously I, you think the note was written in the house. I think the note was written in the house. But I will say the skull fracture pattern and the underlying contusion indicate to me that she was hit with something like long and linear. Um, but I don't think that we've ever had any information about what actually th that was. And I think there was speculation that it was a golf club. Oh, is that right? Yeah, okay. I heard. Okay. But that's also not the murder weapon, right? Because their cause of death was asphyxiation. Mm -hmm secondary to or the skull fracture was secondary to asphyxia for her cause of death so she had a skull fracture but that is not what killed her but I do want to talk about how you would research this from like my perspective at my at my work because I remember maybe it was like five six years ago there was a CBS special where they kind of tried to test whether a young boy could swing something hard enough to fracture a skull. Did you see yeah. this? Okay. So the implication, and I remember like watching this and being like, this is even before I started doing forensics, like before I started doing my PhD work, I remember watching this and thinking this is the most scientifically invalid thing I think I've ever seen. So like the implication obviously of their little experiment for, for TV was that they think Burke hit her on the head with something. Um, and I think Burke sued them, sued CBS over this, but I'm actually not sure how that went, and it's neither really here nor there. So what they did is they got a young boy, and I don't even remember if this was a nine-year-old boy or if this was a child that matched height and weight of Burke. Like, I don't even know. They just got a young boy, and they had him swing, like, a pipe or something and hit a pig's head. Oh, my God. Okay, so, like... That sounds gross, um, but like pigs are actually really good surrogates for human research and stuff like this um, because the skin of a pig is actually really similar to the skin of a human in terms of like um, elasticity and cushioning and things like that. Um, and the skull is actually pretty similar in terms of like um, tolerances. And a lot of the information that we have used in helmet research, like football helmet research, motorcycle helmet research, this, that, and the other, that I've used in my PhD research actually comes from adolescent pig data where they've like taken a pig skull and like dropped it or done something where they've measured the force to determine what how much force it takes to like fracture a pig yeah. skull and then they've just scaled that upward to like the average 50th percentile average male so it's actually that part is actually scientifically sound um but what they do is on the surface of so this little CBS experiment, it has some scientific validity to it, but like all they did was have this kid swing something 
to see if he could fracture the skull. So like they have no way to measure the force. There's no way to measure the applied um, impact force. There's no way to measure the, like, the swinging velocity or compare that to known fracture tolerances or anything. So this was just for TV make them up entertainment. And it doesn't actually tell us anything. Mm -hmm. So the thing that you would want to look at is actually like to see if this, if, if, if your question was, could a, could a child produce enough force to fracture a skull by swinging something? You would want to look at the maximum swinging produ force produced by like the average nine-year-old male. And for obvious reasons, you're not going to find that for like a criminal research paper. Like you're not going to find a paper where a bunch of scientists have like given a lead pipe to a nine-year-old and be like, swing this as hard as you can. Like that's not going to get funded like, or approved. But what you will find is swinging velocities in youth baseball players, right? So like we would look at this and be like, okay, this is the average velocity or speed that a nine-year-old child can swing a baseball bat and that's horizontal but that's the best we have so we could apply that vertically and that can tell us the impact acceleration like how fast the object is moving when it hits the, the um, skull um, and then from that like using basic physics equations you can then calculate like the force of the impact basically because you're looking at like the height and weight of the person swinging the bat or like like the arm weight and like maybe half the torso because you want to look at like the actual amount of the weight that's actually moving swinging the bat mm -hmm. but anyway so you would look at like the accelerated weight and then you could calculate the impact force of the object being hit and then you would say okay we have this force value where how does that compare to known fracture tolerances of the various bones in our situation so we're talking about the occipital the temporal and the parietal and again knowing and this is why like knowing where that impact started is so important because if it starts with the occipital bone that requires a lot more force to break than it would the parietal or the temporal bone so where she was struck would be very important to know right. um so that would basically tell you you could calculate that and say okay in this one theoretical instance yes an average nine-year-old boy could swing something hard enough to cause these injuries but ideally you would want to do this with like multiple subjects swinging the bat like you would want to conduct an actual research experiment where you would get a lot of kids and have them swing a bat and see how much velocity they could actually produce and then so you can run some like statistical averages because like every kid is a different size they have different strengths maybe something like right-handed or left-handed makes a difference like these are all things you don't know so like you would want to run some kind of analysis to like tell you that. So if law enforcement attorneys or whomever came to like a forensic biomechanics consulting group to ask these questions and they were willing to pay for like all of that experimentation, that's how you would ideally investigate this case from a biomechanics standpoint. Mm -hmm. But again, this isn't really a biomechanics case because that isn't her cause of death, but it does kind of give you some insight into like if you watch that CBS documentary or if you think maybe Burke is involved or something like that, that is how you would actually like test that hypothesis and look at that question. Okay. And so that would be, because I think the thing with the CBS was saying is like maybe he hit her over the head and then like he caused the injury and her parents killed her to cover it up. I don't know. I mean, 
I don't know. And I and I, I guess at this point, like we can start doing the speculation because I've gone as far as I can go with like the things that we can prove. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. From a scientific standpoint, so I wanted to talk about it from that standpoint because I don't think that's an approach that has been taken by a lot of people that have talked about this case. Um, and I think that's a really interesting approach to kind of look at it through that lens and kind of give you an insight into what my job is. I know we've had a couple of requests for that, so like that's my job. But also like I don't know that we'll ever have an answer to this case. Like you know what I mean? Like there's all sorts of other things that go into this case, like DNA and crime scene evidence and things like that outside of biomechanics that will tell a lot more than than this. So like I don't know. What do you, I mean, what do you think? Like about what happened? Yeah. I don't I don't know. I mean, I've got a couple different theories that I've always thought happened. I think somebody lost their cool and punished her and went a little too far and it killed her yeah. and they were trying that's to cover really it up. That's a really common That's a really common theory. Like it was like a a, a heat of the moment thing. And I mean, honestly, I don't know. The one thing I will say like I do think the note was written in the house and I like you know, I think there's stuff out there that, like, they have found, um, like, practice notes that have been taken from that same notepad and put in the trash and things like that. So, like, not only does it take a long time to write two and a half pages, but, like, they practice and then, like, ripped a page up and then threw it away and then did it again and then, you know what I mean? So, like... Well, then you also have the aspect where they found seminal fluid. Yeah. So, they actually didn't find seminal fluid. They found evidence of potential prior sexual abuse, okay. but not necessarily evidence that she had been abused at the time of her death. That's horrific. It's yes. absolutely horrific. Yes. And there's a lot of that stuff that I didn't go into because, again, these are things that have been talked about, like ad nauseum, um, but kind of wanted to approach it from like how I would read this case. Somehow this little girl was abused and it ended up going too far I think and I think the parents either killed her themselves or somebody that they knew killed her and they covered it up. Yeah. I hope we get an answer. I just like. Everyone's not... dead now except for the son right? No John isn't dead I don't think. Oh he isn't? I know Patsy died um, and after Patsy died John Ramsey actually... Didn't he marry Natalie Holloway's mother or something like that? They didn't that? get married. They dated. Um, Natalie Holloway, if... Uh, yes, John is still alive. If you don't know, she is a young woman in 2006-ish. From, she's from my hometown of Birmingham. She went missing after her senior graduation trip to um, Aruba and... Natalie Holloway's mother and John Bonet's father met at a support group for um, parents of child victims of, of violent crimes, and they ended up dating, and it was kind of weird. Like yeah. you would see that people saw them around Birmingham, because um, I think he moved back to Atlanta. But but that was a little yeah, that was a, a weird freak show side note. It was, yeah, it's just kind of. I mean, they have every right to date, but it was just a little bizarre. Do you think Burke was involved at all? I don't know. I mean, I don't know. And who do you think was abusing the little girl? So I don't, I don't know 
that it was necessarily somebody in the house that was abusing the girl. Like it could have been somebody else because you know there's a whole thing where she was a child beauty pageant um, participant and like there's the whole issue with that. Like that is super freaky. Like it's it's weird to to sexualize your children like that. Like um, oh we're gonna get hate mail <laughs> from the pageant for being anti child beauty pageant. <laughs> Fine, send it directly <laughs> to me. Um, like it's just. I don't know that it was somebody in the family that was abusing her if she was abused. Like, I'm not sure it's been a hundred percent proven that she, she was abused. Mm -hmm. So there were signs that she may have been correct. And I think it was kind of inconclusive. So I don't know, but I, I think nothing it's, it's a situation where it couldn't have been somebody outside the house. But it also couldn't have been anybody in the house. Like, you know what I mean? Like, well, it could have been somebody in the house. But, like, it just, I don't know how, I don't know how that this happens. And I don't know how it's unsolved. And I won't, I'll say I don't think it's unsolved because of any kind of conspiracy. I think it's unsolved due to incompetence. Mm-hmm. Like, this thing was handled so poorly from the beginning. Yeah, but I think that area doesn't really have a big experienced police force anyway. Uh, yeah, Sure. But, like, if as soon as you find her body in the, situ- in the state that you find her body in, call in the state Bureau of Investigation. Call in the big – call in Denver police. You know what I mean? Like, call in the sheriff's department. Call in other resources again, to say – And, again, egos, it's a – Egos it's a, involved. It's a crime involving a child, and initially they thought it was a kidnapping. So that's a federal crime anyway. So, like, regardless of whether she was taken over state lines or whether there's anybody that thinks she was taken over state lines, after the Lindbergh case, that became a federal crime. The FBI gets involved immediately. So they could have called the FBI in. You know what I mean? So, like, there were ways to approach it that just fudged it from from the jump. And I think those are the reasons that, that we don't know who's responsible for this. And I don't – I truly, truly, genuinely – do not know if, if anybody in the family was involved. I they do did think find the DNA no- on her underwear, though, I thought. They did, but they have not found a source for that. And, like, at some point, I think one of the, their family attorneys has said, like, it could have been something that was, like, from the manufacturer or something like that. Interesting. Which, yeah, like, I don't know. I mean, maybe. But, like, they don't, and they also don't know the source of the DNA. So, like, it wasn't necessarily seminal fluid. So it might have been touched DNA or something like that. I think there's largely a lot of people online speculating that that was seminal fluid on the underwear. But again, you're putting that to rest. There's no indication. And and there's a lot of stuff that, like, I will say does lead to kind of corruption slash incompetence on the part of the police and law enforcement, the district attorney's office, because they did impanel a grand jury. And the grand jury actually wanted to indict, but the district attorney said, no, we're not going to indict. And then that district attorney came forward and was like, we clear the Ramseys. And then when that person like retired or a new DA came in, they were like, they shouldn't have been cleared. This is, this was inappropriate to do as premature. Like we're not saying they did it, but we're saying that they shouldn't have been cleared. Like, so again, when you've got money and power yeah, and affluence, yeah, that carries a lot of weight. Yeah. So I don't know. I really don't know, but I hope that kind of give you got gives you guys an insight into like, how I yeah <laughs> into sure. how I look at these cases and like why I find them so interesting and why I got into what I'm doing now. Thank you, Darcy. That was awesome. Yeah. Cool. Good job. All right. 
going to wrap it up unless you have anything else to add. I don't. So if you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can shoot us an email if you have any fantastical theories that we have not included in the show. Shoot us an email. Let us know about it. Or if you have any ideas for shows that you would like us to cover in the future, we'll be happy to entertain those as well. Yeah. Um, or if you're like, Darcy, this is not interesting. Just stop talking about your work. You could let, <laughs> let us know that. I don't too. think anybody's going to say <laughs> that. Um, social media. Uh, we are at the VFD podcast on Instagram. So we'll be posting, um, you know, Child probably all the pictures. Yeah. Pictures of the note and, you know, all of those. Did you see pictures of the house? Mm-hmm. That's interesting as well. I want to yeah. take some, post some pictures of that. I think I it's find. a very big tourist attraction in, in Boulder. Oh, really? Yeah. I think a lot of people. Gosh, and especially I, since I, the true the crime Ramses genre don't is live like there anymore, exploded. But like, yeah. So I think that whoever owns the house must it must be driving them crazy. But yeah, I, I think a lot of people like when well, can you imagine they, owning no. the house that John Bonet died in? Oh, that no. would be awful. I don't I don't mean to sound like crass or like inconsiderate, but I don't have a problem. And we've talked about this before. I don't have a problem owning a house or living in a house that somebody died in. The thing that would bother me is everybody coming and like taking pictures of the house. I, that's where I'd be like, okay, just stop. Like this is my home. But I don't have an issue with like, I. It's very unfortunate that it was a child, but like I don't. That part doesn't bother me. I guess. I would just be weird, worried yeah. that it would be haunted. They've also completely redone whoever is like living in the house or whoever bought it after the Ramseys moved out. They've also completely like redone the basement area. Oh, I'm sure. Yeah. So. Um. Side note. On the ghost theory. On the ghost theory? Some new stuff I saw this weekend. Oh, yeah. (sighs) Okay, so in addition to the TV just coming on by itself three or four Mm -hmm. times in the last week, just at random times of the day, I came into the kitchen the other day, and there was a bowl in the sink that I did not recognize. What? And I was the only one home. Mike was out of town. Okay, you have somebody living in your house <laughs> and bringing dishware. It was our bowl. Oh, it was your bowl. But I didn't use a bowl, and the maid had come the day before. So where did that bowl come from? You have somebody living in your house. Second thing, <laughs> we have this little step stool, and I had it out in front of the bookcases because I got some new end, you know, what are those things called? Like paperweights to be to hold the books at oh, the end. Bookends. I got some new ones of those and I was putting them up and I had left the, the thing right in front of the bookcase because I put a new one up. I came out yesterday morning before I went to pick Mike up from the airport and it was in the pool room. Okay. Is it, is it possible? Because I very much don't believe in hauntings or anything you know i am there's in my brain there's always a logical explanation for something is it possible like you just have a really bad memory and don't don't remember doing these things my memory is exceptional there's See, no my memory freaking sucks. way so why like, would i put that stool in the pool room i don't know why? but like i it would be completely conceivable for me to be like i have no idea where this bowl came from and then three days later be like oh no i did get that bowl out so like it's been three days i haven't at all thought i know where that bowl came from okay well i think the only other i have been ordering somebody living in your house i've been ordering doordash for a week straight now (laughs) i haven't cooked anything i haven't used 
any silverware additions. It's just been DoorDash. I think it may be time to like go into the basement and look in those rooms after rooms after rooms after rooms that you described. Mm, I'm not doing it by myself. Go, <laughs> Durst, go come like, visit. You'll do it to get. We'll do it together. You have asked me to come visit, and I don't know why you keep telling me these stories because they're <laughs> making me less likely to visit. You need to go into these rooms like knife first and just like swing, just start swinging and like see what. Oh happens. my god! Like, I slept with a hammer on the bed. <laughs> I don't gone. believe you. You're freaking me out. <laughs> it was funny. It was too funny. He's home what? now, and I'm so thankful that he's home because I'm yeah. like, oh my god, no, why? I don't, Something, something's going on. I had a little talk with like Ken, it. the previous owner, after the TV what did came he on. Say? After the TV came on again, and Mike wasn't here, I was like, "Listen, Ken," because Ken used to be an attorney. He used to practice uh-huh. bankruptcy law. I was like, "Listen, Ken. Number one, it's time to work. It's not time to watch TV. We have to buckle down right now because we, we've oh, got work to do." Oh, he passed away. This is not yes. an actual. Okay, he's the ghost. Yes, yes. Okay. So I had a talk with him, and I said, you know, you're freaking me out. You can't be turning the TV on at random times. It's time to work. Number two, you are an attorney. I need help here. you got to pay your way. <laughs> if you're going to stay in this house, you've got to help me out here because I know, I know you're a smart guy. I know you're an attorney. you got to help me get this work done. And we came to an agreement. And? And then I found the, the bowl on the stool. Yeah, so uh, did you come to an agreement? But or? the TV didn't come on by itself. Okay. Again. Well, so maybe, maybe it was very specific. You just have to request, like, very specific things. Don't be getting out bowls. Don't be turned on a TV. Well, according to his obituary, he liked country western music, so I try to play that sometimes just to, you know, make sure he gets to listen to something that he likes. I don't, see, I'm pretty sure I'm never going to come visit you. <laughs> <laughs> like, I don't, I don't, Dahlia will like, protect you. I don't, I don't, I don't know. What, wait, what'd you say? Dahlia will protect you. I, please. D- She's too afraid to go Ghosts to the Ghosts don't like dogs. Backyard. <laughs> like, I just made that up. If I'm in a situation where I have to rely on Dahlia to protect me, like we need to go ahead and call it a day. Like yeah, that's but not the thing is, be. I don't feel afraid of it at all. I don't feel yeah. like it's bad. I feel like right. it's mischievous sometimes, and it's like I just don't. Goofy. I don't like it because I don't believe in ghosts. So like to me, there's a physical something doing this, and I don't like that. <laughs> but I did sleep with a hammer next to my bed because I, was yeah. afra- I wasn't afraid of ghosts. I was afraid that somebody would come into yeah. the house. That is Even though we have freaking correct. cameras everywhere and alarms all over the place, I was afraid somebody would come into the house. So I no, that is, that is the correct view. It's, not, it's <laughs> less likely to be a ghost, and that's why I'm like, no, I don't fool with that. But I don't think I'm going to stay in the house alone again. I think it's next time he goes out of town, I'm going to have somebody come stay with me because... Staying in a house this size by yourself is really Freaky. scary. Yeah, yeah. And your mind plays tricks on you anyway, and then you have to have actual things happening. Mm-mm. And our house Mm-mm. makes a lot of noise. Mm-mm. Like a Mm-mm. lot. Mm-mm. Nope, not doing it. <laughs> not doing it. And the, I ordered DoorDash on this weekend, and they delivered it like three houses down. <laughs> I was like, they I saw went the house out and they, they were like, it, I'm not going there. They said it was delivered, and I was like, where's my food? I had that happen to me one time. And I was they, like, delivered it on the so wrong floor. hungry, and I was yeah. like crying practically, and I went out to look for it. I was like looking <laughs> at all the neighbor's You're houses. You're it's here. It's not here. <laughs> and I fell and ate, just ate it hard in the driveway because it was all icy. Oh, man. And I slipped and just pff, landed hard, didn't break got your up, face and I was again. like, forget it. I am not eating tonight. Like, <laughs> but then one of the neighbors called and was like, hey, we have a bag of food that has your name on it. Is this yours? <laughs> I finally found it. But oh, anyway, boy. yeah, they were like 
hard pass on your house. It's yeah, well, spooky. so you guys can also write us in and tell us if you think Sarah has a ghost or somebody living in her basement. Maybe. I yeah. think it's the latter. I think it's I think it's Ken. He's a good guy, though. He's not a bad dude. I hope it's Ken. Ken's not a bad guy. Although I, there have been seven families that have lived in this house over the last 150 maybe years. Maybe one like, of them came back. They're not bad, though. They're good. I mean, I They're hope good that that's true. It's like Casper the Friendly Ghost. Again, I hope that that is true. Okay, we're <laughs> going to wrap this one up. <laughs> <laughs> good night, podcast peeps. Stay safe, keep it real, and always live your very best life. Bye. Bye, guys. <laughs>